your Bibles, and I hope you do, turn in them to Hebrews chapter 12, Hebrews actually chapter 13, Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to read verses 7 and 8, Hebrews chapter 13, and we're going to look at verses 7 and 8, kind of as an intro into our new series that we kind of dipped into a little bit last week, but uh, this is the official start, and so uh, we just want to remember as we look at the... Uh, Story and significance of the five solas. I think this is a great way to uh, create great framework for looking at church history. Hebrews chapter 13, verses 7 through 8. Remember those who led you, who spoke the word of God to you, and considering the result of their conduct, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. And why can we do that? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today, yes and forever. Isn't that encouraging? That is good news. We're going to study a lot about different men and different doctrines, but we need to realize that what happened 500 years ago, Jesus Christ is still the same as yesterday, today, and tomorrow. So, October 31st, 2017 is going to be the 500th anniversary of the Reformation. The 500th anniversary of the Reformation. This October 13th. And so, what's the big deal about that and why should we care? Well, here's what I want to do in this lesson. I want to answer the question, is the Reformation worth remembering and celebrating? And I want you to decide. You decide. Is this going to be worth remembering and celebrating? Well, I hope that you're going to end up saying yes and you'll come back. Uh, If you say no, then I guess you'll check out until World Outreach and we'll see you again. But what happened 500 years ago? Well, God used a monk with a mallet to spark a revolution. God used a monk by the name of Martin Luther to spark a revolution. And exactly what happened 500 years ago? Well, I checked. October 31st, 1517 was actually a Wednesday. And according to tradition, it was around 2 in the afternoon that a monk by the name of Martin Luther approached the church in the university town of Wittenberg, where he was a professor, uh, professor of Bible, Germany, to nail his 95 theses to the church doors. Now you say, what in the world is a 95 theses? Just think of this, 95 points to debate. They're points of debate. And they were focused on a certain practice of what we now know as the Roman Catholic Church, which in Luther's day was the ruling church that exercised control over the spiritual lives of nearly all the people in Europe. Okay, so we're going to talk a lot about the Roman Catholic Church in the, in, the day, in the weeks ahead. Now, with each hammer blow, this monk, Martin Luther, was unknowingly unleashing a revolution that still impacts us today. And let me just give you five ways that the, Ref, that the Reformation and, him, and what Martin Luther did on that day in pounding these 95 theses onto this church door, what happened. It resulted in political... Uh, in economic revolution, economic revolution, it impacted and introduced free market enterprise. 
in a way that had not been before. I was just talking to Ben this morning. He's got his own business. Well, that this resulted in, in average work, everyday workers having dignity and being able to establish businesses. Number two, it resulted in a political, political revolution. The development of our modern-day nation-states. They didn't exist before this. And nation-states came of age. And that even impacted the establishing of America. That was influenced by the, Revol- uh, by the Reformation. Number, number three, it resulted in an educational revolution. An educational revolution. Vast majority of the people during the Reformation were illiterate. Uh, the printing press had just been invented. And so people, uh, that's why a lot of worship had a lot to do with icons, images, statues, because people had, they didn't have their own Bible. They couldn't read. And so it was an image driven type of worship. It's kind of interesting that as we increasingly become a more illiterate and especially biblically illiterate nation, Worship in America is becoming more image-driven and less word and reading based. Kind of interesting. Fourth, cultural revolution. Cultural revolution. Uh, The Reformation resulted in seeing all of life as being under the rule of God. In other words, it it began to break down the, the barriers between secular and sacred. And all of life was seen as a gift of God. But... The greatest revolution as a result of the Reformation was a spiritual revolution, a reformation, a reformation that still impacts us today. Let me give you a couple quotes from a great church historian by the name of Philip Schaff. And uh, let me just read this. The Reformation of the 16th century is, is next to the introduction of Christianity, the greatest event in history. Now, that's that's a pretty profound statement. Next to the coming of Jesus Christ and the introduction of Christianity, the Reformation is the most important event in history. It marks the end of the Middle Ages and the beginning of modern times. And starting from religion, it gave directly or indirectly a mighty impulse to every forward movement. And it made Protestantism the chief propelling force in the history of modern civilization. There's hardly anything you can't look at, see, or understand about Western civilization today that isn't somehow directly impacted by the Reformation. So, let's define some terms. I'm a stickler on defining terms because we throw out these words and we're going to use some of these words And I want you to help define those, and so you'll know. What do we mean by to reform something? What's it mean to reform? This is as simple as I can give it to you. Simple dictionary definition. To cause a change for the better. To cause a change for the better by correcting or removing what's wrong or in error. We use this word in this way sometimes, like if you're going to reform a drunk. If you're going to reform a drunk, you're going to take away their alcohol, take away their drunkenness, and replace it with sobriety. If we're going to reform education, how many people think we need to reform education? Yeah, it needs to, it needs, we need a change for the better. Amen? 
And we need to remove what's not working, what's wrong, and what's in error. And we need to replace it with what's right and what's true. And it's going to result in a better, a change for the better. So you get the idea. So when we talk about to reform something, it's a change for the better. 500 years ago, a change for the better took place that was rooted in religion, rooted in Christianity, that is still impacting us today. Secondly, the Reformation. We use this word a lot. What's it mean? Here's a real simple definition I'm going to give you. The Reformation was a turning point in church history that was a back-to-the-Bible movement of God. If I had to reduce the Reformation to one simple idea, it's a back-to-the-Bible movement of God. God used men and women... And he used circumstances, he used, he used the Pope, he used priests, he used people, he used princes. And it was all sovereignly under his control to bring his people back to the Bible to restore his message and his mission in his local churches. That's the essence of it. It had all these other results, political, economical, but the bottom line was... God's people were brought back to the Bible to understand what is the gospel and what is our purpose on this planet as his people. So that's that's what we and that's why this is going to lead right into right into our world outreach celebration in October. And it was a turning point and as a turning point that means it is focused on October 31st, 1517. But it's not just one day or moment in time. It's a movement of God that led to three things. Open Bibles in the 1600s. Open hearts in the 1700s. And open doors in the 1800s. You can trace the influence of the Reformation. It resulted in open Bibles in the 1600s. We call the King James Bible, 1611. Why? Because out of the, out of the Reformation came this, transfer, this, uh, this movement of God to translate the Bible into the language of people to bring God's people back to the Bible. But what happened is when you get open Bibles, you get open hearts. And in the 1700s, we had revivals all broke out in England and it crossed and hopped over the ocean here in America. The Great Awakening, because once you get God's people not just carrying their Bibles, not just having Bibles on their phone, but open your Bible and it results in open hearts. And when God's people and lost people begin to have an open heart to God, that results in open doors for the gospel. And so in the 1800s, you have William Carey, you have Judson, you have the great missionary movement that can be rooted back to this turning point. Open Bibles result in open hearts that results in open doors. A burden that, hey, I found God through His Word. I want you to know it also. And here's the Reformation. What It reminds us that this, the most powerful force in all of history is a common man with a common Bible committed to an uncommon purpose. That's the Reformation. The most powerful f- force. Luther was an unknown, ordinary monk. Now, he was highly gifted. 
He was an amazing individual. Not everybody can translate the entire Bible from the original languages into their mother tongue in just a few weeks' time, months' time. But he was still just an ordinary guy. And his desire was to translate the Bible into German so that ordinary German men and women could have a Bible in their ordinary, everyday language so that they could be committed to an uncommon purpose. And that uncommon purpose is to glorify God by fulfilling the Great Commission. Amen? That's our purpose. That's what the Reformation is about. Now, let me give you a couple other definitions. What's Reformation theology? Reformation theology is usually associated with what we're studying, and that is the five the five solas. Okay? That's what this series is eventually going to arrive to. But I want to tell you the story of them and not just the significance. So the theology that came out of the Reformation is not tied to any one denomination. So I don't want you to think that, oh, you know, like we're studying some denomination or, oh, we're becoming Presbyterian. No, this isn't about any denomination. It's the Reformation theology is tied to the Bible. Back to the Bible, remember? It's tied to the Bible. And it's revealed and rooted in the Bible. So let me give you the five solas. It's Reformation theology is the five solas. It is Bible-based. Reformation theology is Bible-based. Sola Scriptura. They wrote in Latin because the educated people uh, read and understood Latin. So you're saying, why, do we, why are all these uh, you know, Latin, uh, Latin ideas? Because that's how these guys wrote, that's how they talked in that day. But all that means is Scripture alone. Because sola basically means either only or alone. Alright, so Scripture alone. Secondly, Reformation theology is God-glorifying. It is God-glorifying. And to say that in Latin and impress your friends, soli deo gloria. To God be the glory alone. Michelle, you go home, use that, whip that around a little bit, and see what the kids say. Number three, it's Christ-centered. It's Christ-centered. And to say that in Latin, solus Christus, in Christ alone. Fourth, it's gospel proclaiming. It's gospel proclaiming. And to say that, sola fide, through faith alone. The gospel is spelled done, not do. Roman Catholicism had transformed the gospel into something you do and you have to keep doing. In fact, you'll never do it enough. And so you better hope that you can get some merit from people who have done it better than you. Do, 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 do. But when you go back to the Bible, you realize the gospel is spelled D-O-N-E. It's done. It's done in Christ and you receive it as a free gift. Christ has done for me what I couldn't do for myself, faith alone. And number five, Reformation theology is life-changing. Life-changing. Sola gratia, by grace alone. You see, the grace of God not only forgives sins, but it gives you a new heart. Amen? It gives you new desires. It's life-changing. And so, by grace alone. So, What is this? What does it come down to? The five solas are the essence of saving faith. 
This is the gospel. When you combine these five solas together, that's, this is basically how you lead someone to Christ. According to the authority of Scripture alone, we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, for the glory of God alone. Can I hear an amen? amen. Yeah, isn't that good? That's good news. It's simply, Reformation theology is gospel. I like what, uh, do what? Yep, yep. It's uh, Carl Truman, who is a uh, church history dude. Uh, he defines the Reformation in a very general way that really serves as a great definition of Reformation theology, and it's this. A move to place God, as He has revealed Himself in Christ, at the center of the church's life and thought. And that's really, really a great definition. Now, one last word to define, and that's reformed. Actually, I guess two. Reformed is used to describe a doctrinal system. Reformed theology. Not Reformation theology, but actually Reformed theology. And that's usually labeled as Calvinism. How many of you ever heard of Calvinism? How many wish you had never heard of Calvin? You know, maybe, I don't know. How many are glad? I don't know. Don't, don't, don't answer that. But the point is, Reformed theology, that's Calvinism. And that's not really what we're going to talk about. There's some overlap there, I guess, and there's some ways you can describe it. I don't want to get any deeper in those weeds or tulips than, than, than that. But just say, did you like that, Jim? Reformed theology is really rooted to a doctrinal system. And I just want to say, what I'm trying to, my point I'm making is, the five solas are not a doctrinal system. They are not a doctrinal system, and they are not Calvinists. They are biblical gospel theology, all right? And there are Reformed churches, which are usually Presbyterian. And, uh, and so that's that. But here's the deal. All Bible believers should hold to the five solas. All Bible believers should hold, should hold to the five solas. And that doesn't make you tied to any one denomination. In fact, men such as Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher and evangelist, Adrianiam Judson, the first Baptist missionary, first missionary from America who also happened to become a Baptist, and William Carey, the father of modern missions, who was a Baptist as well, held to these five solas. So I'm just letting you know that more than you wanted to know on that point, but it was necessary. Last one I want you to define for you. Reforming. Reforming is often used to describe the rediscovery of biblical revelation that leads to repentance, realignment, and restoration of sound doctrine. Here's what I want you to understand. The Reformation was a reforming movement. Because when you go back to the Bible and you go back to God's revelation, it brings forth repentance in those who have faith in God. It brings a need of, wow, God is here, I am here, there's a gap, I need to make changes. And so we turn from our sin and we turn back to God. And in doing that, we begin to realign not just our beliefs, but our behavior. And not just our behavior, but our worship. Our everyday lives need to be realigned with God's Word. And a great example of this that we just looked at 
the great example of reforming, if you want to understand how God goes about reforming his people, changing them for the better, read Revelation 1 through 3. Revelation 1 through 3. Revelation 1, you see this great revelation of Jesus Christ in all his glory. And then in chapters 2 through 3, he calls the churches by his word and by his spirit to repent and realign and reflect who he is. Basically, he says, you guys need to reform. You need to repent. You need to realign. You need to reflect me to this world. Another example in the 16th century is the Reformation. That's what we're studying. But we have a 20th century example in the churches of the Southern Baptist Convention. Like the Roman Catholic Church, we're not just picking on, in, on just one religion. Like the Roman Catholic Church in the uh, 1500s, the Southern Baptist Convention in the 19 and 1900s, had departed from the Bible and had become to put men's thinking and men's traditions to, and separating the people of God from the Bible. Oh, they, had a, they all had Bibles. They all had it in English. But they were now teaching the traditions of men. And so they had to have a reformation. And thank God it happened. And we can see the impact of that just here at Midwestern. I grew up. In this city, and I grew up in this town, and for the longest time, that was just a, it was just a, yeah, I just won't say, it it was a pit, and and big, large churches, Baptist churches in this community went totally liberal, and you can see them today, they're empty, and they've become social gospel, I mean, there's one right by my house, and they plant corn, and Raise ducks and chickens and more power to them. But where's the gospel? But when this reformation took place in the Southern Baptist Convention and that they took back the seminaries, now these seminaries are pumping out men and women who love the Word of God, preach the Word of God, and they're starting to recapture these churches here in Kansas City. And not only recapture churches and bring them into ref, to reforming them, but planting new churches. And it will change this city. This stuff matters. It has impact, impact all around us. And then we just have, we're in the 21st century. Our lives, our church, we need to always be reforming. We need to always. So I think it's just a God thing, because I'm way not smart enough to do this, that we studied Revelation 1, and now we're moving into a study of the Reformation, and then we're going to end with our world outreach celebration, because that's exactly how God works. That's how God works. And I hope we see that we are in need of this. I like what, again, Carl Truman says. The point is simple. Reformation is not something that happens one point in time and then ceases. Indeed, as soon as we rest content with our outward forms, the language used in worship, the Bible translation read from the pulpit, the kind of musical accompaniment or lack thereof in our worship service, and we rest content in these, we are in need of reforming. 
We need to be constantly examining our practices and procedures by the light of the Word of God in order to make sure that what we do, that we do what we do because it's biblical and not simply because it's familiar or culturally acceptable. Make sense? Open Bibles lead to open hearts that lead to change in life and worship and ultimately sends us on the mission. Now, point number two, in what ways are we still benefiting spiritually? And we went over all this last week. And so since this is still like the first lesson, I included it there. We're not going to go over all those many ways that the Reformation has indeed changed our worship and changed the way we approach Jesus. All I want you to know is this. Our church service is because it, we're teaching here. We have two, two opportunities for you to learn the Word of God. That's Reformation influence. We have our pulpit at the center of our worship service, not an altar where we re-crucify Christ. Every, every uh, a man re-crucifies Christ in the form of, of a piece of bread every Sunday, but we proclaim what Christ has already done. We, as a people, sing praises, and as a people, we have lay people lead in prayer and lead in song. Why? Because we're believer priests. All impact of the Reformation. Now, number three, who deserves the glory for all this? Who deserves the glory for all this? Let me just be very clear. None of the, you know, Martin Luther would probably be amazed that we're even like teaching on his life, okay? And he might even say, what are you bothering with me for? You should be exalting Jesus Christ. None of these guys wanted to make a name for themselves. Luther never wanted or intended to start a denomination named after him. He never meant to start the Lutherans, okay? Let me give you this quote. This is from him, written five years. He said this five years after this day. I ask that my name be left silent and people not call themselves Lutheran, but rather Christians. Who is Luther? The doctrine is not mine. I have been crucified for no one. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 3, 4 through 5 would not suffer that the Christians should call themselves a Paul or Peter, but Christian. How should I, a poor stinking bag of worms? Now, you got to understand, Luther was a common dude. I mean, how often do you hear people, you know, I'm just a poor, stinking bag of worms. Become so that the children of Christ are named with my unholy name. It should not be, dear friends. Let us extinguish all divisive names and be called Christians whose doctrine we have. The Pope's men rightly have a divisive name because they are not satisfied with the doctrine and name of Christ and want to be with the Pope, who is their master. I have not been and will not be a master. Along with the church, I have the one general teaching of Christ who alone is our master. Isn't that wonderful? You know who deserves the glory for all this? Who? God deserves the glory for all this. He uses people, men and women. He uses them, but he uses them for his glory. I love, if, you, if, you, if Martin Luther was standing here today and you said, how did this Reformation take place? How did pounding these 95 points of debate on the church door cause such a change 
that is still being felt in the world today. Well, we have a quote from Luther. I simply taught and preached and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And then, while I swept, slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that never a prince or an emperor did such damage to it. I did nothing. The word did it all. The word did it all. Scriptura, sola scriptura, scripture alone. The French reformer, John Calvin, he would hate it today that people would call themselves Calvinists and exalt his name. He demanded that when he die, he be buried in a pine box with an unmarked grave. And to this day, we do not know where John Calvin was buried. Listen, the goal in studying church history, or the Bible for that matter, is not to idolize or glorify men, but to give God the glory for how he uses men and women to accomplish his purposes. As one, uh, uh, as one student of history said, Luther was a big man, and he was, and he made big mistakes, and he did along with all his fellow reformers. Let us not idolize these people, but learn from them, for they were simply doing in their age and generation what we seek to do in ours, and none of us are perfect. Amen? So that's the idea. That's the idea. You see, the hero, the hero of the story of the Bible and the hero of church history is God. He's the hero of the Bible. Okay, so it's not Moses, it's not David, it's not Luther, it's not Calvin, it's not me, it's not you. The hero of our lives should be God and God alone. And so we should be able to say, soli Deo Gloria, to God be the glory alone, and solus Christus, in Christ alone. Now, if you would ask any of the reformers how this all happened, I think they would answer with the five solas. If you asked them how this happened, they would answer with the five solas. So I want to go over there. It was done by the authority of Scripture alone. So that's sola number one. They would say, look, it's not our good works, it's Scripture. And I just read that quote from Luther. It was God's Word. I did nothing. Number two, they would say it was done by faith alone and not by their own good works. Man, we didn't do anything. It was by faith. Faith alone. Number three, they would say it was done by Christ alone. It wasn't the Pope, it wasn't a prince, it wasn't a, me as a, as a reformer, it was Christ alone. Number four, they would say it was done by grace alone, not due to their human, human goodness or planning. Man, if you want to hear Luther talk about himself, he doesn't just call him himself a stinking bag of worms, he calls himself all sorts of names because he knows that in him, dwells no good thing and one of their most basic doctrines is just that in man there's nothing good that dwells in us that gives us any credit before god and then number five it was done for god's glory alone and not to glorify themselves in fact sebastian 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 i got so many accents going on here sebastian bach the great composer was influenced by the Reformation. And if you know anything about Bach and his compositions, he would write 
two letters at the before he wrote a musical composition he would put these letters up in the 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 left hand corner jj which was latin for jesus help me jesus help me then he would write his great compositions and at the end he would put sdg soli deo gloria to god be the glory you know what that wouldn't be a bad way to start your day jesus help me and then at the end of the day to god be the glory wouldn't be a way a bad way to vacuum the house jesus help me and then when you're done to god be the glory it wouldn't be a bad way to mow the lawn gwen wishes i would jesus help me so and and to god be the glory just you know this composer he was a musician and he took what he did in daily life and he let the Reformation, he let the Bible impact how he did it. Now, this is the order that you have written there. That's the order that we're going to eventually get to and study the, uh, the solas on. So that just gives you that. Now, after all, these guys didn't really mean to make a movement. Luther didn't mean to unleash all of this on that faithful Wednesday. He was just a very sincere Catholic monk trying to answer two of the most important questions anyone could ask. So if you would ask Luther or you would ask me, what questions was the Reformation trying to answer? When Luther pounded these 95 points of debate, what was he asking and what answers was he looking for? Two of the most important questions in life. What must I do to be saved from God's wrath and enjoy a relationship with Him? What must I do to be saved from God's wrath and enjoy a relationship with Him? And then, who has the ultimate authority to answer that question? One of the greatest things about studying Martin Luther's life is, is he was simply a Roman Catholic of his time wanting to ask, wanting an answer to the question, what must I do to have 100% assurance of my salvation? And he proceeded to work his way through every answer that Roman Catholicism could give you. And every answer came up short until he went back to the Bible. And when he went back to the Bible and back to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that answered his questions. And that is what unleashed the Reformation. So, number four, what does this have to do with us? Well, people are still asking those questions. People are still asking those questions. And listen, I realize that we're in a postmodern day where all truth, Every, you know, everyone's true, right in their own eyes, right? So they may not be asking, hey, but they're still struggling. That's what you've got to understand, right? People are still struggling with the question of, when I die, what happens? When I die, will I go to heaven? Will I go to hell? Is there a heaven? Is there a hell? And who can tell me? Who can give me that assurance? The answer to those two questions will determine your destiny for eternity. And that's true for everyone here. Don't think of others right now. I want you to think of yourself. How would you answer those two questions? And a correct answer, a correct answer will lead you to a burden-lifting, guilt-removing, 
experience of God's forgiveness and eternal life. The burden of your sins can be lifted. The guilt of your sins can be removed. And you can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ. You get the correct answers. If you get wrong answers, if you get wrong answers, it's going to lead you to burden-bearing, guilt-ridden experience of God's judgment and eternal wrath. And so Martin Luther was this monk... He became a monk to try to lift his guilt and get close to God. It didn't work. And then he went to Rome to get near the Pope in order to lift his guilt and get close to God. And he went to Rome and he saw sin among God's supposedly godly leaders. It didn't work. So he would beat himself with whips and lashes. He would repeat things. He would uh, fast And his guilt was always greater. It wasn't until he could answer this question. And so, listen, there's a lot of, don't let anybody tell you, there's a lot of things that led into the Reformation. But the ultimate thing that caused the Reformation was trying to answer, what must I do to be saved and who has the authority? And let me me prove you or show that to you. Martin Luther was a good monk. He was a good monk. I love this quote by Martin Luther. If ever there was a monk who got to heaven by his monkery, it was me. If I mean, this guy, he was just a down-to-earth, crusty old dude, you know, Bible-toting, beer-drinking, and he just talked like them. And he just said, hey, if anybody could ever become a monk by his monkery, it was me. And if the Pope were to assemble a softball team of all-star monks in those days, Martin Luther would have been the MVM, most valuable monk. Now, when I say that, it's not because the Pope knew who he was or anyone cared. He was, no one knew who this guy was. When he hammered this, this up, no one knew who he was. But they soon found out. So, Martin Luther's 95 points of debate were not 95 gripes created by a disgruntled church member. Okay? What, what I'm trying to say is Luther was a good Roman Catholic, and, and when he hammered these things up there, he was in full support of the Pope. In fact, he thought, he, what he didn't realize was he thought the Pope was more godly than what he was. And he wanted to support it. And basically he said this, if the Pope knew what you guys were doing, he'd be upset. In reality, the Pope told him to do what they were doing. Okay, And so he wasn't a disgruntled church member that put notes under pastor's doors uh, without signing them. Yes, people do that. Really, what ha- all of this was the, the 95 theses, these 95 debate points, were all written in Latin because he was a professor and he was an educated man. And he wanted to debate this practice of selling indulgences with those who were also educated. So he didn't write this to cause a riot. He didn't write it to cause a revolution. He was like saying, hey, we need to do better as Roman or as Catholics. We need to do better. And, and so let's discuss this. In fact, I think I have in your notes uh, uh, some of these debate points. Now, why did he do it on what we call, in fact, I think I have Halloween on there. Yeah, Luther chose October 31st 
to hammer his 95 talking points through the church door because October 31st was All Saints Eve or Hollows Eve, what we now know as Halloween. You say, we're Hollows Eve, Halloween. That's the idea. Now, why did he do that? Because on the next day, November 1st, was All Saints Day. And it was around this time that they would sell these indulgences. And on All Saints Day, you would celebrate all the dead saints, and you would buy a ticket to go see relics of the dead saints. So they they would have, here's the tooth of Saint so-and-so. You know, here's a fragment of the cross of Christ. Here's blood off of Mary's dress. They would have, I mean, you name it, they had it. And and, uh, the area that Martin Luther lived in, the prince that was in charge of that area, had more relics than anyone else. Now, why would you want more relics? The more relics, the more tickets. And the more tickets you sell, the more money you've got. And so he would have... (laughs) 30, 40,000. And so you'd buy, you'd buy a ticket and you could walk through and they had the tables lined up and you could look at all the relics. You could see the big toenail of this saint and you could see the, the, the tooth and you could see all these things of the Apostle Paul, the Peter and all the saints. And if you would buy your ticket and the more of those relics you would see, the more time off you would get for your sins and more time off you would get for a loved one in purgatory. So think about this. If I know that all of us, uh, we believe in God, but we're so ungodly, our works are so lacking in God's eyes that we're going to have to spend time in purgatory. Well, if I can get less time in purgatory for a loved one, how many times would you be buying tickets? If you knew, hey, you know what? Buy this ticket and you can get a loved one a thousand years off in purgatory. Well, you'd find out how much your your relatives loved you, wouldn't you? <laughs> and if you bought it for yourself, instead of doing penance and doing uh, things to earn God's forgiveness that the priest would tell you, you could just show them your ticket and say, "I don't, I, you know, I'm covered. I don't have to confess that sin. I don't have to do penance. I don't have to crawl." Or do any good. I'm, I'm, I'm fine. I, I bought my ticket. I got my ticket. Well, you can see what happened. So here, here's, basically, here's basically the idea. Is there's a certain number of, of, there's a few saints, a certain number of saints, who did above and beyond what God expected of them. They were the, you know, the go-getters. They were the overachievers. So these were the spiritual overachievers. And they had done more than God required. So there was like a bank account up here, a treasury of merit. It was called a treasury of merit. In other words, they had a mutual fund full of, 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 of God's acceptance. And we're down here. We're not saints. We're simple Roman Catholic believers and and, of course, we, we live far below what God expects, but we can tap into the extra good works that they have stored up for us. And so the way you did that was you would buy an indulgence. And so that's kind of the idea of, that he's protesting. Well, I'll let you read through some of these. 
It's interesting, as you read these 95 theses, one of the main things that Martin Luther says is, look, if the Pope really loved people and wanted to forgive their sins, why wouldn't he just do it out of love? He's the Pope. Why wouldn't he just do it out of love? In fact, why would he just have special days for granting forgiveness? If he really loved people and wanted to forgive them, he'd forgive them a hundred times. He'd hand out these forgiveness tickets all the time for free, right? Look, in fact, you can look at uh, uh, thesis number 88 that I have in your notes. 88. Again, surely a greater good could be done to the church if the Pope were to bestow these remissions and dispensations, not once as now, but a hundred times a day for the benefit of any believer, whatever. Look at number 86 right above that. Again, since the Pope's income today is larger than that of the wealthiest of wealthy men, why does he not build this one church, St. Peter, with his own money rather than with the money of penniless believers? In other words, he wanted to build St. Peter's Basilica, which exists today, the Vatican, right? Here, the Pope's place, okay? He wanted to build that, but he had to pay for it. And the way he paid for it was on the backs of people's guilt. I'll, I'll give you. I'll, I'll, I'll sell you forgiveness so I can build my church. And, 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 and Martin Luther knew that. And he said, "Why don't you buy it? Build it with your own money. You're the richest man on the planet." And he probably was. But what I'm trying to tell you, though, is at this point in time, Martin Luther's not mad at the Pope. He just doesn't understand and doesn't agree with what he's doing. All right, but that's going to change. That's going to change. The problem was, it was written in Latin, it was meant for academic debate by church hierarchy, but it was quickly translated into common German and printed with the brand new printing press that had just been invented. And what went from a scholarly religious debate went viral on the internet of that world. Now, So here's the answer to the question, and I hope you agree. Number five, the Reformation is worth remembering and celebrating because God used it to bring his people back to the Bible for life's greatest questions. Back to the Bible. Now, here are, I think, five of life's greatest questions, and they're all answered by the five solas. So here's what we're going to answer in the weeks to come. Who or what is the standard of truth or the final authority that God, in what God requires of us? The answer is going to be Scripture alone. Number two, what must I do to be stay, saved, stay saved, and be sure of my salvation? The answer is going to be salvation by faith alone. Who do we need to go to in order to be saved by God? Priest, pastor, pope? The answer is going to be Christ alone. Am I good enough to, to help God in saving me? And the answer is going to be no, salvation is by grace alone. And then the question, why am I here and who deserves the credit for all this is solely Deo Gloria for the glory of God alone. So I hope that you see this is something we should be interested in and it's something that we should celebrate. And so in the weeks to come, we're going to dive into that. And so kind of think about these and kind of basically 
let's memorize them. Scripture alone, faith alone, Christ alone, grace alone, to the glory of God alone. All right? History is meaningful, and it can be fun to study. And I hope you come away with that. Let's pray. Father, we come, and uh, uh, we live kind of in a new dark age. We live in a time where Bibles are more prevalent than ever, and they are opened less than ever. We live in a time where there is more access to Bible teaching, and yet there is more false teaching, more teaching of the traditions of men than ever before. Father, we need to be brought back to you. And I pray that in looking back at Martin Luther and the Reformation, that we will be prepared as a people and as a church to move forward on the mission that you have for LifeBridge. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.